Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Chase. And this is Jay. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for September 14th, 2022. I can't believe we're <laughs> heading into the home stretch on 2022. Feels like <laughs> we just started, but uh, quick reminder, this is spoiler-free on New Comics Wednesday for the Comic Source, but uh, if you're looking for the DC books, those are on our DC Spotlight that comes out every Tuesday. There are spoilers. I do that podcast with Rocky from Comic Boom, and we analyze characterization and story points and plot and all that kind of stuff. So go check out DC Spotlight either on the Comic Boom YouTube channel or here at the Comic Source if you're curious about the DC stuff. But just be warned that there are spoilers. Uh, with that being said, we got about 15 books, 12, 13 books uh, to talk about. It's a pretty solid week. Not a, not a huge week, which is good because I feel like we've had huge week after huge week. It's a little tough on the pocketbook, uh, but really some quality books, like books that I, you know, I finished reading them. I was like, damn, that was so good. So uh, excited to talk about them. Uh, let's kick it off with Seven Sons. This is from writers Robert Windham and Kelvin Mao. Art is by Jay Lee. Colors by June Chung. Letters by Crank. This is kind of an alternate universe story wherein religion has really kind of taken over the world. Um, something to do with possibly something that happened in, in Vietnam, and we get a little bit more of that back history, 1968 South Vietnam, in this issue. We also get a better understanding of kind of the conspiracy behind this religion sort of taking over, taking power, capturing the imagination of the world. And I've talked about it before. It's not like this this religion this christianity that's preached is uh, like designated as the only religion but it's so powerful if you if you don't if you aren't a member if you're not a follower if you're not a believer you're sort of shunned so they preach religious freedom but it's not actually what happens and there also is this rebellion that's brewing and some of the 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 sons you know it's tied in with a native american myth i've talked about this before uh, the myth back in the day was a man who was the seventh son of his father. If he bore a seventh son um, or his wife bore a seventh son, I guess I should say, uh, then that seventh son of a seventh son would have these powers. Right. And so in this religion, there are these prophets and su supposedly uh, one of them is the seventh son of a seventh son, uh, who's basically going to be revealed at some point of, of like the Messiah's return. Um, but, some of those religious figures, some of those sons start to realize that things aren't really what they seem, not what they've been told their whole life. So it's very much a conspiracy going on. So while I'm not the biggest fan of Jay Lee's art in terms of style, it does sort of suit this world and this story that these writers are telling. And I feel like this issue with what we learn, it sort of grounds the story in a very real way, because previously, especially in the first issue, it feel everything feels sort of esoteric. The, um, you know, when you're talking about ideas of religion and faith, that can be very abstract. And I didn't know if it if these people had power because they really were religious figures and had, you know, the ability to perform miracles, or maybe it was magic in some way, so, something supernatural, and tied in with religion. And I've talked about. Uh, before not being the biggest fan of, of religion as a, a story point, maybe because I was raised in a very religious home and just kind of rebelled against that uh, and wanted to have freedom to think and decide for myself. Um, 
but the story has been interesting enough. And these writers, they've been planting seeds, uh, Mao and, and Windholm, they've been planting seeds all along that, you know, things were more grounded and it's more like these people behind the throne, if you will, or the people pulling the strings. It's the age old idea of just wanting power and manipulating things so that they could have power. And really nothing is as supernatural as it was being sold, you know, to the world. So this issue, especially there's hints of what's actually going on, who these seven sons are. And it's really, really interesting. So um, I do think it would read as a completely different book if it, Jay Lee wasn't doing the art. Um, so I get that. that's for sort of what adds to the supernatural feel of it. Um, just, I'm not sure what it is about his art other than, you know, I've talked about the facial features before his eyes and noses and mouths are just so small on this giant face. It just always looks weird to me, but it's, uh, it's definitely worth your time and worth a read if you are so inclined. All right. First book Jay's going to talk about, let me get it up in front of me here, um, is Captain Marvel. Uh, we are up to issue number 41. It's written by Kelly Thompson. Art is by Juan Fregera and Alvaro Lopez. Colors by Jordi Belair and letters by Clayton Cowles. This is the the final part of the trial storyline. What do you think? Oh, I liked it. It's because uh, he finally escaped from her little uh, other world prison, you know, from the dragons. Now, now she's back in the real world. And we saw in the last is uh, issue that there's a real dragon in the real world. So she's got to fight that thing off. But uh, it's fun because it's still part of, you know, that the trial going on. Um, we got a team up with you know, a lot of our old friends. Um, it wasn't like anything like crazy going on in this one. It was just uh, kind of neat how they kind of have the banter going on with her and her friends and um, how they kind of resolve everything. End of the story with the trial being over with, I guess you can say this time around. But we also I guess the, the big thing is the what's the. the binary i guess the big thing for binary is like you know she's uh, kind of figured out her own little uh her path in life i guess you can say so that's kind of neat too but i like it. it was it was a solid issue it was just kind of fun and how they tied all up the the whole trial thing was kind of nice yeah i agree really a chance for kelly thompson to show who carol is once again uh, in case anybody has a doubt about her level of of heroism and, and who she is um and in a way, this trial sort of took the edge off her. Carol in recent times has been, well, always has had a temper. She's always been somewhat of a, a volatile character and seems like she's mellowing out over the years. Uh, and I appreciate that from Kelly Thompson. Again, I think Kelly Thompson has a better handle on who Carol Danvers is than any writer I've ever read in the Marvel Universe. Uh, but she never loses sight, at, you know, telling these emotional very character-driven story. She never loses sight to bring the humor. Well, you mentioned the banter between Carol and Jessica Drew and her sister, L'Oreal, and even Binary. The Binary thing is sort of weird to me to have Binary going off on her own already because it sort of doesn't make sense. Nothing's been explained. Like Carol somehow manifested this Binary. Like, I mean, did Carol, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? If you, if you, sort of extrapolated out she created a life form that's like right, god is. level ability and you know? so innocent, it's so innocent she hasn't really figured out life that like you know, right yeah. she knows she knows right from wrong but she still could be kind of manipulated into thinking you know what i mean she's just like a child yeah so with a I lot mean, of was, power <laughs> was the binary form always in carol 
you know, and now it's just manifested itself. If we took a DNA sample of binary, would it be identical to Carol? Like there's so, I have so many questions. Like, I like binary as a character, but I sort of like Carol as binary. And I get, and this isn't, you know, the first time we've seen this type of story where it's kind of like a, a very naive fish out of water sort of story and binary is going to go around and, you know, try to learn and she wants to be on her own. And yeah, she, she, she mentions, you know, I have Carol's heart. I have her, her you know, soul in, in a way, her, her sense of heroism, if you will, um, her, her moral code, maybe I should say more than soul. Um, but again, that's a story that's been told and I don't know, it's not a hundred percent original, but I trust Kelly Thompson, but she's, I don't know. It just feels weird that binary has gone off on her own already. Um, <laughs> So I don't know, a little strange. Maybe I just have a soft spot in my heart for binary. I always loved when Carol was binary. So I was hoping maybe for a little more, but anyway, next book I'm going to talk about just real briefly. It's an aftershock title, Samurai Doggy. This is issue number two, The Mouse Trail. It's from writer Chris Tex. Santos does the art and the colors and the lettering. I don't even know how to describe this book other than to say it's a dog who's a samurai. Um, And at the beginning of the first issue, this dog's mother and a lot of his pack were all slaughtered by these bad guys. I mean, not even hundred percent explained who they are. Um, and this dog was, this little puppy was spared and, and eventually is trained by samurai. Um, but the world that they, he inhabits, and this is years and years later, he's out there looking for revenge for the, uh, the killing of his, his family. Um, and so he's out there in this world and there are other animals that are sentient. There's tons of robots and there's also what look to be humanoid type figures, but blue skin, no nose. Like, I don't know. It's clearly some sort of alien world. And in a way it seems kind of run down and old because again, you have samurai, um, but then there are also blasters and lasers and whatnot. It's almost like some sort of weird, like star Wars, crazy mashup. I, I don't know what to think of it. It is entertaining. Um, and in this particular issue, we meet this blue skinned character um, and focus on him and Samurai Doggy doesn't even show up to like the last page. Um, and we s- sort of get that last page, which, which is the moment that the first issue ends on. So it's almost like, I don't know if this character is going to team up with Samurai Doggy or what's what exactly is going to happen. But I will say this. The art suits this weirdness of this world and the story so well that if you pick it up and flip through it, if the art catches your imagination, you're going to like the story as well. Um, but it's too soon to say what the heck this thing is. Um, you know, usually I say to give something two issues and you can sort of figure it out. I feel like I haven't gotten two issues yet, though, because the first one is solely focused on Samurai Doggy and second one's focused on this other character. So I guess I'm in for a third Um because I'm still trying to figure out what the heck's going on. So definitely uh, a different, <laughs> a different sort of story in a, uh, in a lot of ways. Oh, I agree uh, with that one. <laughs> yeah. All right. Up next, we have another aftershock book and this one really blew me away. It's called the zero six protocol. It's written by Lee Turner. Cliff Richards does the art Matt Herms on colors, Cardinal Ray on letters. what do you think of this? It's such a good story. Uh, when you, I first read, I wasn't sure what was going on, but then, um, it's the mother and a daughter. So it's Kat and uh, what was the daughter's name? Molly, right? Is it Molly? Or Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Miss, Missy. Missy. Missy, that's it. So yeah. it's pretty much focused the stories around those two characters uh, with their husband. You know, um, I'm not really giving any spoilers away because you look at the preview things, it tells you, you know, it's like uh, 
uh, something happens to the husband and the mother and daughter are on the run and all that. I don't want to give too much away because it is just mind blowing because you think it's going to go one direction. And then the end of the story, you find out the truth behind, you know, the, the family secret, I guess you can say, and you're like, wow. So if you like mystery and you like a little more of uh, like, it's like spies and uh, espionage, this is definitely the book. It's like, what if they actually did this? You know, the government deals with the government and some of the things they did with you people. It's just, uh, and it's, it sounds about right too. Cause the very end they said, well, we made, we made a mistake. It's like, yeah, I, that's, that's what sounds like about the government. They always make mistakes. They lose things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, the solicit, you know, talked about this mother and daughter, be, you know, ha- ha- losing the the husband, the father, and kind of being on the run from this shadowy government conspiracy. So, I mean, that is not the most original idea. If done well, it can be interesting. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. It sort of starts off, and it, it's still good, but it starts off, uh, you know, kind of a story I've seen before, you know, where some family is, you know, the guy, the guy had been a spy and, you know, he settled in and retired from the life, but then his past catches up to him. Like we've all seen that story in movie and comics or whatever, like a tons of times. Right. But again, if it's done right and, and has good action and good acting, uh, if it's a comic, if it has good art and good pacing and good dialogue, it can work. Right. So you sort of think that's what this is. And for the first, I don't know, two thirds of the comic, that's, that seems to be what it is. But then all of a sudden there is this twist and the twist, they don't these right. What I really give Lee Kramer, the writer, a lot of credit for is it's not like the twist sort of plays out over a few pages and you're, you kind of see it coming. Um, It goes from like one panel to the next, like that, like the twist and the twist is revealed and then the action just ramps up again. So like, this was one of those books that I was saying at the beginning where, uh, you know, the books this week or I put, I finished reading it and I was like, holy shit, that was so good. Um, I think the Cliff Richards art is fantastic. Uh, he handles the action really, really well. Um, there's a lot of flashback and he handles that well. Also, uh, yeah, I was just blown away. I was super impressed. Um, like I immediately wanted to, to read the next issue. Um, and, and I want to read more stuff from Lee Kramer because I, I thought this was really, really fantastic. So. Oh, it draws you in really easily with, that, with the story. And you get 40 pages, like, well, this is a lot for the first yeah. issue, but it was so worth it because he had to do it to get the story out there. Yeah, and and for that, for being that long, it, it flew by. Like, it was yeah. <laughs> it was over before I knew it, and I, I really wanted more, so. Uh, all right, up next from Image, uh, The Least We Can Do. This is from writers Yolanda Zanfardino uh, and then uh, creator Elisa Rombali or artist um she handles uh, i think the coloring and the lettering as well so this is the same uh team that um that we covered their uh their previous series which i really really enjoyed also uh, a thing called truth which was sort of a kind of a buddy relationship type book with these two women that go on this uh, road trip this is something completely different this is fantasy um, with people who I don't, I, they sort of have fascist overtones in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's a, it's a fantastical world. Um, but it's, it's our world, but in the, in the sort of in the future. And there is, um, there is somewhat of a flashback and I like, it's done on like binder paper with these really crude drawings. And it sort of gives the the history of what's gone on, um, where 
there was some sort of war and our world sort of fell apart. And then um, humanity discovered magic, basically, and they're focused through these gems or stones, and it's called medium, the medium. Um, but there was a thought by a, a big majority, or at least the people that remained in power, that humans would end up destroying themselves by using this power. So they sort of outlawed it. And so there, there is somewhat of a, a rebellion, a smaller uh, faction of people who believe that they can use the power of the medium to, to make the world a better place um, and sort of rebuild um, society from the, you know, the wreckage of this war that happened. And then the other people, the ones that are in power, they don't want to take the risk. So it's somewhat of a, a class struggle or, or you know struggle between these two different factions, and this focuses on um, this this girl who is um, I don't want to give too much away, but this girl that's drawn into the conflict who sort of feels like she is a part of both worlds in a way. Uh, her name is Uriel. Um, and she's kind of our POV character in, in a lot of ways. Um, and she seems to be a very, very interesting character who's gone through a lot of different traumas. So uh, I was impressed by this, completely different from what Yolanda and Elisa had, had done before with Thing Called Truth, which again, just really, really impressed me. So I definitely recommend jumping on this. First issue, everything's explained. It's got a nice hook. It has a little bit of a fantasy feel, a little bit of a post-apocalyptic future feel. And a little bit of, I don't want to say like a Harry Potter feel, but Uriel is a, kind of a young girl and it does deal with magic and she is sort of, you know, learning on the fly as it were. So it does have those aspects of, uh, you know, kind of a classic magical story with a young protagonist. So, uh, all right. Up next for Jay from Marvel, we have the latest issue of Amazing Spider-Man issue number nine, which is a little weird. Uh, and the reason I say that is because it has Wolverine as a guest star. A lot of the X-Men show up, but Wolverine is is who I would say is a guest star. Um, but I feel like this should be more of a story that was in the um, the X-Men books as opposed, because it has more to do with like the future of the X-Books than it does this. Plus it's Hellfire Gala, which happened months ago. <laughs> that's Axe, what I was thinking. <laughs> Axe, is, Axe is the event that's going on right now in X-Men. So, and the other part is like, okay, remember back in the 90s when every single new series you would see within the first seven or eight issues, you would see uh, Wolverine show up, Ghost Rider show up, and Punisher show up. Like every time, every time there's a new series, it would be those three because those were the most popular characters. And to get a new title you know, off the ground, you'd want people, oh, I'm a Wolverine fan. I'm going to go ahead and pick up Darkhawk or the new Spider-Man from Todd McFarlane had Wolverine co-star in like the sixth issue. So that was the other thing. I'm like, not that you need help selling a Spider-Man title, but typically I expect Wolverine to show up in issue six. Um, I guess just because of the timing that was going on, that's why it took so long to, to get this out there, but it just feels weird because again, the Hellfire Gala was so long ago. So yeah, this I kind of felt like there was some, Issues with this issue, if you will. But anyway, Zeb Wells is the writer. Patrick Gleason is the artist. Marcio Menez on colors. Joe Caramagna on letters. Setting aside that it feels super late to be tying into the Hellfire Gala. What do you think of this? Yeah, I thought the same thing when I was reading. I was like, wasn't that a while ago? But okay, whatever. So I, I just went with it. 
but it's fun. I mean, uh, you know, Wolverine, you know, has to be with Spidey, of course. Um, he shows up the gala, yada, and then we find out why he's there. Um, deals with with uh, Mary Jane, so it's more or less a team up, team up again, I guess, with uh, Spidey Wolverine, which is fine. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, you got a lot of fighting and whatnot in the comic, but the key thing I think I, I take away from this, uh, it was it was a fun issue. Was like the ending was so. I don't know. I guess I, I expected something more out of it, but it was just like kind of just like meh, and that was it. It was like people were just like meh, okay, you know. I just uh, I just had to be here, I guess. Yeah. Did I you? Expect, I don't know. Did you read the Hair, Hellfire Gala special? Uh, no, I did not. Okay, so if you read the Hellfire Gala special, you sort of saw the first half of the story already play out. The thing, the events that happened at the gala between Spider-Man and Mary Jane, you saw those things already happen. Now we months later, we get the other half of the story, uh, how it's resolved, which I it had been so long. I'd completely forgotten that this went down at the Hellfire Gala, to be honest with you. So, the, again, that's that's a failure editorially in my mind to take that long. And the other part of it is, like I said, like w- with what happens with Moira McTaggart in this issue is really important for the X-Men stories, the X-Men it, uh, titles. It doesn't matter for Spider-Man. Um, and then with the ending, kind of abrupt ending, but the scene between Peter and MJ is so disheartening. And what it does is once again, and I know I'm going to sound like a broken record here. Once again, it shoves in our face that something happened six months ago and we still don't know what it is. And we're almost a year into this title now. Like enough, <laughs> yeah. enough, yeah. With, enough with the hinting, Zeb Wells. And, you know, I, I remember I said this when the very first issue came out. If you shove it in our face constantly and don't tell us what happened, it gets annoying. And it's to that point. And I, th- I don't think I complained about this last issue because I don't think it was mentioned last issue. No. But here again, we have it shoved in our face with no context. You know, and I can't imagine that people would talk about this in a way like if Peter gets a chance to talk to MJ, he's not going to try to explain himself, you know, but instead everything he says, you know, hints, it's all coy. No, that's not. They both know what happened. They're not trying to keep a secret. People don't talk like that in real life. You know, they're, they're, the dialogue is what it is, hinting and making reference to this terrible thing that happened to keep it a mystery from us. That's not how people really would talk. So the dialogue comes across as forced. You know, I, I had said time and again during the beyond, um, the beyond board, the TV writer's room style uh, with the beyond story where Ben Riley was in the costume that it was such a, um, a nice palate cleanser from the Nick Spencer era of amazing Spider-Man that just seemed so depressing and not fun. Um, this is getting monotonous in, in a lot of ways. And the, the, the fun is coming off of this because it's annoying about this mystery. That's not being um, explained. And the other part of this is like, I can't help but feel like Zeb Wells wants to get back to like a classic what he feels is like a classic era of Spider-Man. Like if you go back to the first hundred issues of Spider-Man with either Stanley, uh, well, with Stanley writing it and then either Steve Ditko or John Romita senior drawing it, you know, Pete was just one terrible thing. You know, he was the sad sack. He was one obstacle after another. Aunt May constantly in danger. He was always broke, you know, blah, blah, blah. And now I, I feel like he's trying to get back to that, but you can't, you can't recapture that era. It's too classic. Pete needs to move forward. Like decades have gone by. He needs to grow. 
Um, and I feel like that's what he's doing. He's putting him in this terrible position where he doesn't have any friends. He did this terrible thing. Um, even at the point where at the end of the issue and, and everybody's seen the solicits in the cover, like on the cover of issue 10, it's Peter and Gwen. Like, right. Gwen, I, was, Gwen. I was like, what, what's going on here? Yeah. I mean, bad enough that Marvel brought back Gwen with spider Gwen, ghost spider, whatever the heck her name is. Like she was one of those people that always should have stayed dead along with uncle Ben. Um, I know it's not the spider. It's not Peter's Gwen. It's a Gwen from, you know, a different part of the Marvel multiverse, but still you're, you're diluting the character and taking away from what makes her special. But now we're to believe the other Gwen, the true Gwen is coming back. Like, again, it just seems like Zeb Wells is kind of regurgitating stuff that we've seen before. That's a little bit disappointing. I want to see new stuff um, like explore Pete and Norman Osborn. Like there's hints that this costume he built or that he's wearing now and that he helped build with Norman Osborn. Like what happened in that six months? Um so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm starting to have mixed feelings about Amazing Spider-Man. And let me ask you this. How do you feel about the fact that it's the kind of classic? Now, originally, the costume was supposed to be black and red. And then we know due to the way that you printed on newsprint back in the day, it came out looking blue and red. And then everybody, oh, it's blue and red. Um, <laughs> I mean, it looks more black and red. This costume, it looks more black and red. But instead of having like white eyes... He's got the yellow eyes and there's even the yellow spider on the chest. Do you like that? The no, I, I don't like it at all. It looks too I much don't like, either. It's like Batman. It's like, dude, whatever yeah. you, Batman. <laughs> it looks horrible, especially when they would zoom in the close-ups of his face and he'd have these giant yellow eyes. It looks like, you know, um, reminds me of like yellow snow. That should be white. It, it, yes. it, doesn't, it looks dirty. It doesn't. Uh, yeah, I don't like it. So. Not to I hate agree. on Amazing Spider-Man because. No, I, no, I, I agree. The costume isn't that great. It's yeah. like, oh. Uh, yeah, I do think that a lot of what Zeb Wells is doing has a lot of potential, but he's dragging this mystery out too long. And yeah, I, I need some. It's not fun to read about a character that we love, like Peter Parker, to just have him have one bad thing happen to him after another. Like he needs some wins at some point to make it a little more fun. So, uh, all right, let's move on. Get this out of the way here. All right. Up next for me, we have. Um, Oops, sorry. We have Love Everlasting from Image Comics. This is written by Tom King. Uh, Elsa Charatier is the artist. Matt Hollingsworth on colors. Clayton Cal on letters. So if you subscribe to Tom King's Substack, you, you've already read this. You already know what's going on. But I didn't, when I talked about the first issue, I didn't mention what was happening. And by the way, I should say that if you subscribe to the newsletter, even on the free tier, you can read the Love Everlasting. Um, so it's not necessarily what you might expect from Tom King in a way, but in a way, it's exactly what you'd expect. So you say love everlasting and it's like this romance comic. And in the first issue, we meet the main character, Joan, who appears to be a character in a romance comic. And, it, you know, it's very traditional guy from the wrong side of the tracks, uh, you know, falls in love, bad boy, whatever. But th there's a bunch of different stories. There's another one where um, she meets a guy who... Uh, doesn't appear to have it all together. It's in the sixties. He's sort of this hippie guy. Uh, his, her father disapproves and then come to find out this hippie guy is actually the son of uh, this very rich person. Who's uh, an even bigger, big deal in the uh, father's firm than the father himself is. Um, and he was kind of not necessarily putting on a disguise, but when he met the girl, he didn't want her to like him for his money. So, you know, a lot of sort of tropey ideas, 
of romance. But the one thing that goes throughout, I think there's three or four little romance stories in the first issue is Joan. Like she falls in love with these guys, but then at the end, this cowboy shows up and kills her and she wakes up and she's in another romance story. Like she's aware that she's basically, you know, living these romance comic lives. So that's what I'm saying about not really a Tom King, what you would expect from Tom King, but in a way, exactly what you expect. Like what would be worse, a worse nightmare or more depressing than, being thrown in these tropey, you know, very 60s, old-fashioned, misogynistic romance tales and, you know, not being able to find a way out and having this mysterious gunman show up at the end of each story to kill you and then you wake up and you're in another one. Um, And so, yeah, I don't know. Well, based on what we've read in the first two issues, you don't know where it's going, uh, but this is a full-length story that gets a little more into uh, who Joan is um, and what she may or may not be aware of about what's, what's happening to her. Um, So it ends on a little bit of a downer note, a sort of a a cliffhanger where uh, it hints that more, uh, more things may be revealed about what exactly is going on. What's this world Joan's trapped in. Um, There's still a lot, a lot of twists and turns to come, Um, but it's really, really interesting. And, the artwork by Elsa Chartier is uh, definitely a throwback style, but really, really works. You know, real thick, bold lines, um, real clean artwork in a lot of ways. So it definitely harkens back to like a 60s, 50s, 60s style when romance comics were were much more popular. So I do recommend giving it a, uh, a try. I mean, even if you don't want to spend the money on it, just go over to Substack and subscribe to Tom's newsletter and you can go back and, you know, read the first couple of issues um and see if you want to take the plunge but it's it's definitely something different um and there's plenty of surprises along the way so uh all right up next from jay we have part three of the red fist saga this is in daredevil number three which i'm still annoyed that they relaunched it because it was the same creative team chip zadarsky and marco Cicchetto. um zadarsky is the writer of this issue but we do have a guest artist rafael della torre uh, Matthew Wilson does the colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, last issue, we met one of Matt's um, old college classmates, Robert Goldie Goldman, who apparently is like this guardian angel and said he's responsible for all the terrible things that have happened in Matt's life. And I sort of like that um, because a lot of times when you think about Matt, like nobody could have as terrible luck as Matt Murdock, but just one bad thing after another happy. So I like that Zdarsky figured out a way to sort of make that make sense. Now uh, it's open-ended whether that is really the case. If Goldman, a uh, Goldberg, uh, Goldie, uh, is it Goldberg? Yeah. Goldman, yeah. Robert, Robert Goldman. Yeah. If he's just delusional and he's sort of telling Matt the story because he can't like, Hey, all these bad things have happened to you. It's been me all along pulling the strings because God's, God wants me to put these challenges in front of you to make you the best hero you can be. Now, is that actually true or is it just, he's just using all the ter- tragedy that's happened in Matt's life to make Matt think that. Uh, and I like that. We'll probably never get the answer to that, uh, but I like that Zdarsky sort of put it in to the story that way. Cause it leaves it, it leaves it open for other writers to come back and, you know, di- maybe disregard Goldman if they want to, or they can explore it if they want to, but it's certainly an interesting take on it and when i was reading it in the last issue um or for, for the actually first issue and it was in issue one and issue two um 
when I was reading it, I was like, well, this does make a lot of sense for why Matt has had so much crap happen to him, happen to him over the years. But um, that's, that was the first two issues. This is issue three. What'd you think? I, I agree. It's like, why did I do a number one again? But Hey, it's, I guess it's for uh, making sales. Why not? <laughs> but this is actually pretty fun. Uh, he actually starts off uh, talking to a friend to kind of help him on this next mission. Cause if you read the preview, it tells you that uh, him and a lecturer are going to try to leave New York and do other things. And I guess he's just trying to tie loose ends in the city. But uh, we also find uh, the, the new mayor of New York, which is uh, Luke Cage. And uh, he runs into some, I guess, terrible people that run New York. And they're kind of like laying the law to him of what's going on. So you're like, okay, so that's going to build up the whole, uh, I guess, the next, I guess, big battle or what's going to happen to Mad and Electra because you also got, the, you know, they're running the the fist, but you got the hand. And then this issue, uh, you know, Daredevil also runs into the leader of the uh, opposing forces, I guess you can say. And she kind of drops a little note of what's, who's working with who. And he's like, okay. So I think he's laying the ground. Uh, I guess the chess pieces are on the board for the, for the, I guess the, the next battle down the line of the story, but it was a fun issue, but uh, you see, there's a lot of bad people that are going to be coming out of the woodworks here pretty soon. Yeah. Then, what was interesting, what was interesting to me is you, you sort of think, you know, who the bad guys are going to be, right? Like Matt and Electra are going to, you know, rebuild the fist and they're going to go up against the hand and Matt's going to leave New York behind. And, and that's the thing, like Electra's already been out, you know, rebuilding the hand and Matt has been sort of lollygagging in New York in a lot of ways. And he keeps saying, I need to go. I need to go. I need to go. Right. And then he even says that in this issue, but then yet he's still in New York. And then with what happens with, you know, Luke Cage and these other big bads that have been in uh, a kind of a thorn in Daredevil's side for a long time, even going back to the, um, the Charles soul days. I won't say who they are, but um, all of a sudden you find out that maybe we're not going to leave New York at all, or as much as we thought, like New York's still going to be New York and what's going on in New York is still going to be part of the story, which I find interesting because I sort of feel like daredevil doesn't, doesn't work as well when he's outside of New York. I mean, he's very much a street level character. When you take him, you know, traveling the world or whatever, going up against the hand, um, I think it loses something. I don't, he works in San Francisco to a, a lesser extent. I don't think he works as well in San Francisco as he does in New York. He's just a quintessential New York character in my mind. So I like that, that that's happening. And then, yeah, anybody who's been reading Punisher knows that the current leader of the hand is Frank Castle and Frank Castle and Daredevil have a long history of, you know, being antagonists um, and, you know, fighting basically and not seeing eye to eye. So, you know, expect that to come as well. Um, but again, if you've been reading Punisher, you know that he, Frank Castle isn't necessarily, he's starting to realize that being the leader of the hand is probably not what he should be doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, Jason Aaron, fantastic writer, Chip Zdarsky, fantastic writer. I imagine we're going to get a crossover between the Punisher title and the Daredevil title at some point. But no, yeah, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of good stuff to come. And the Rafael Della Torre art, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it as much as Chichetto's art, but it's still really solid and great color work from Matt Wilson as always. So, yeah, Daredevil's fantastic title. I still think they shouldn't have started over with a new number no. one, but that's, that's just, make money. You got to make money. Yeah, <laughs> but, it, but I guess, but yeah, uh, Daredevil, it's Hell's Kitchen. I don't see him anywhere else. I mean, just yeah. leave it. Yeah, come on. 
Yep, exactly. Uh, all right. Up next for me, there's something wrong with Patrick Todd, issue number three from Aftershock, written by Ed Brisson. Gavin Goodry is the artist, Chris O'Halloran on colors, Hassan Otsman Elhal on letters. This is one of those particular issues where I'm not going to be able to talk about anything that happens uh, just because it's so fast paced and so jam packed that, you know, to talk about anything would be to give stuff away. So Patrick Todd, for whatever reason, has these mental abilities, has the ability to get people to do what he wants them to do. Um, his mom is has something wrong with her. She's in a mental hospital, like almost in a vegetative state. It's very expensive. His dad is apparently nowhere to be found. So in order to pay that, um, he, Patrick Todd basically was going around and looking in people's minds and finding people that had done really terrible things like kidnapping, rape, um, pedophiles. And he would force these people, you know, he with, with the powers of his mind, would brainwash them, go in, rob a bank, come and give me the money, and then go turn yourself in to the police and confess to the bank robbery and these other crimes that you've committed. And then he, Patrick Todd would take that money and go and pay his mom's medical bills. So the detectives have been, you know, on the case, particularly one detective, because it doesn't make sense to them that these criminals would be turned, you know, going and robbing and the money, they can't find the money. None of the money from these robberies shows up. Plus, it just doesn't make sense that these criminals would go in and then confess to the robbing of the bank and the other crimes. So these detectives get curious. Hey, what's going on? And they start putting two and two together. Meanwhile, in issue number two, we meet this character named Zeus, who claims to be Patrick Todd's dad and is putting um, posters up all around town, flyers saying, with a picture of Patrick Todd saying, hey, um, I need to find my son. Please help me. And that's where this issue sort of picks up with Zeus and Patrick Todd meeting. We find out, is, is Zeus really Patrick Todd's father? Zeus seems to have some mind control powers as well, so it would seem to make sense that he would be. Um, but things go sideways in, in a hurry but with the meeting, and then it's all out action after that. Um, so I'm really enjoying this series. Uh, Ed Brisson's a fantastic writer. Um, th this is just... It's so fantastic um, because it touches on how in over his head Patrick Todd is, yet he's trying to do the right thing. I love the setting. It's set in Nova Scotia in Canada. Ed Brisson is Canadian. I think I think that's where he grew up. I don't think he lives in Nova Scotia anymore, but I could be wrong about that. Um, but yeah, this is a fantastic series and very fast-paced. Uh, with only two issues left, I'm not sure how it all gets wrapped up, but I'm very curious to uh, to find out what's going on because, yeah, Patrick is a likable character. You can understand the, the reasons he's making the choices he's making, you know, even if you don't necessarily disagree, uh, agree, even if you don't necessarily agree with them. You know, he is a young guy and he's trying to do the best he can and take care of his mom. Um, but, yeah, he hasn't really thought things through, but it comes across as very real and very relatable for uh, somebody who's young and in over their head. So, uh, all right, up next for Jay, we have the final issue of A Righteous Thirst for Vengeance. This is from a writer, Rick Remender. We have art by Andre Lima Arrojo. Um, it's a 10 year jump forward uh, from the last issue. Uh, what did you think? Well, you can tell from the last issue, and they showed the preview for this last issue that you know he was it's the same kid, just older, so it wasn't no you know shocker there. 
but it was so creepy because you kind of get the it's like i feel like they took something that happened recently in the news i guess about a year or two ago and they put it in here because the i guess the main villain of the story we found out that it all kind of unfolds for him in this issue but the the prison that he, that he goes to it's like yeah, it's like, you know, we always hear this, you know, it's just so funny because we always talk about, you know, if you're like super, super rich, what is prison like for you? Well, in this one, they kind of show you what it would be like if you were that rich and you were had to go to prison. It's, you know, it's just like, really? Um, but the ending was good because uh, for me, it was kind of uh, like, yeah, finally, because it's just, it was building to that moment where, you know, I want some payback, you know, as, as a reader. And it's like, you know, finally, this is it. Yeah, I sort of agree. Um, it definitely, you sort of wonder all along, like, where does this title righteous thirst for vengeance come from? Um, but in a way it makes the entire series build up that builds up to this particular issue, all just set up. Like the whole title comes from this issue. So in a way I sort of, I sort of wish that we could have gotten some glimpses into what happened in, in the, in, you know, that 10 year gap that's missing here. Um, Cause it's like the, the first part, like every issue up to this part is just, you know, this guy being pursued, this boy being pursued, his mother being pursued. Um, so in a way it's like all set up. So I don't know. Um, was it sort of cathartic to see the, you know, the bad guy get what's coming to him? Yeah. It's, that's always cool to see. Um, but I don't know. Again, I don't know how well this, this works as, a whole story. I mean, I need to go back and reread it. Uh, I will say this in terms of storytelling, in terms of artwork, unbelievable achievement by Remender and Arojo, like just, just fantastic. I mean, Arojo's detail in his artwork, his, story, his visual storytelling. I mean, what do we count like words in the first couple issues? And it was like less than 10 yeah. words. Like it was all just visual storytelling. So this is definitely uh, a fantastic comic in terms of you know the way it was made and put together like technically a, a perfect comic showing the power of what visual storytelling can do um as far as story structure and does it does it work that's where i'm i'm wondering uh and again it, it very well might i might go back and reread and be like okay i see more hint you know knowing the end now and going back and reading it and seeing what what's hinted at and whatnot it may very well work but i don't i don't know uh, again, I, I can't say, um, I, I, I don't know. I just, I sort of expected more, but if this is all it is, if it's just about the journey of this kid and him getting his revenge in the end, you know, th there's something to be said for that. It's a, it's a simple story, but there's, it's a powerful story in a lot of ways. Um, I don't know. I, I like, maybe it's too simple for me. You know what I mean? I want a little, <laughs> yeah. want a little more meat on the bone, but th well, that's I just, just my, yeah. my personal I like preference. It's like the way the first issue, like I said, was no words. You know, it was just, you know, a lot of visual. And you, you, got, you got the story from just seeing that. But after he does the deed, it's like those last panels, just, it was no words. It was just him just quiet again. So I like how they did it and then ended that way, too. It's like, okay, that's, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, it definitely seemed to echo the beginning of the story in the end. So, uh, all right. Up next for me, the Bone Orchard Mythos, 10,000 Black Feathers, number one. This is from Jeff Lemire. Uh, Andrea Sorrentino does the art, Dave Stewart on colors. Uh, it's hard to overstate just how fantastic Lemire and Sorrentino collaborate when they do horror stuff. What's interesting about this is to see Sorrentino do a cleaner art style. 
Um, so this is a story of a, of a woman who's going back to the place where she grew up. And whenever we get flashbacks of her as a little kid, it's very brightly colored by Dave Stewart. And the line work is very clean. Backgrounds are very clean as well. And then when you get the scenes in the present day, it it's much more muddy, uh, much of a dark, much more of a darker palette. Very, very much reminds me of um, the Eisner award-winning series that these creators did previously. Um, and I cannot remember the name of it right now. Do you remember the name of what these guys did previously? Uh, it's going to drive me crazy. Um, I'm going to have to look it up real fast. But anyway, uh, one of the things that I said about that story was how uh, Dave Stewart manages to make things creepy even when you uh, – Gideon Falls is the name of the, the previous series. Uh, but even when you have scenes that ha that take place in the middle of the day, Dave Stewart's coloring manages to make it look creepy. That does not change here. Um Again, it's super creepy, visualization really creepy, but interspersed with those flashbacks that are cleaner and bright, more brightly colored, it, it makes the art in the present day even more creepy and even more dark in a lot of ways. So anyway, this this girl, this young girl that we see in the flashbacks, who she's new in town, she's a foster child, she makes friends with a neighbor um, and the neighbor's child, and then something terrible happens. Uh, she moves away. She becomes a writer, but now it seems like her life is falling apart. So she's kind of come home um, to sort of regroup. At least that's what she tells the people around her. But really what's happening is she's trying to run away from something horrible. Uh, and we get some hints of that here. And we realize that it might be tied into what happened to her friend way back when. So it's a creepy start. Again, this creative team of Lemire and Sorrentino and Dave Stewart won an Eisner for Gideon Falls, which was a fantastic story. Um, this seems to be picking up right where they're taking off um, with Gideon Falls. So smart horror. That's not, it's not body horror. It's not gory. It's not slasher. It's not dumbed down. It's uh, it's, it's very impactful and moody horror. So definitely recommend it. Uh, speaking of horror, up next for Jay, we have The Silver Coin, The Bad Year. Uh, we're up to issue number 14 of The Silver Coin. This issue is written by Pornsack Pichichote. Line work and lettering by Michael Walsh is always colored by Tony Marie Griffin and Michael Walsh. Uh, what do you think? Well, I know you say you didn't read it, but did you read this one? I can't remember you said it. Yeah, no, one. no. I've, I've been reading Silver Coin. I've oh, read okay. The, I've read all the issues, including this one. Yeah. Okay. It was like I mean, we we're talking about before we start recording. It's like maybe it's a little too soon for the the concept of the story, but it's uh it's it's the called the bad year, and it pretty much covers like real life. What we've all been through the pandemic, the the election, all that kind of separated so many people during that in the last election, and then um some of the bad things that happen to certain you know other people, you know um you know but police killings and all that. It, it deals with all that and the, and the and a couple. That kind of gets separated because of all this chaos, you know. They each have their own um, side, I guess you can pick, of what they believe, you know, is right or wrong. And it, it's so, I guess, it's, it kind of hit close to home. And I don't know if it is too soon, but I, I enjoyed it. I was like, okay, why not? You know, it's real life. Let's talk about it. But the, the best part about it was just how that coin, that little coin, can mess with someone's mind. And that's what I liked about this. Is like 
it was all just so crazy um what was going on with this uh the, the main character and then the very end you kind of see what you know what really is going on and you're like wow but you know the coin always needs to feed of course you know yeah so so what's interesting to me about the silver coin and i, and I love the concept that michael walsh has created here with this coin that's traveled you know through the years through different people's hands and you can tell you know all kinds of stories with it um and it allows him to bring in all these different writers and get to collaborate with them. So, you know, fantastic idea. I mean, maybe Michael Walsh is like, man, I have this giant list of writers that I want to work with. I'm literally not going to live long enough to, you know, do a, a project with all of them. Let me do one where I'm working with a different writer every, every issue. So kudos to him for pulling this off. What I will say about the silver coin though, is sometimes the issues and the stories, the coin feels like a very necessary part of it. Um, like the one where the people came and the, you know, the woman made a wish in the diner that her diner would be more busy and people just came in with these appetites at eight and eight and eight. Yeah. Um, and the coin was added in and you kind of wonder, well, you could have kind of told that story without the coin. I, I feel like you could tell this story without the coin as well. Cause yeah, it is about that year, a little over a year, you know, from, from after the election, you know, covering the pandemic when we we're all sort of shut in. So the, the story sort of starts in the middle. Right. With this couple splitting um, after having been quarantined together and as things sort of degenerate and move forward in the story and their relationship falls apart and terrible things happen interspersed in that you go backwards, you know, from most recent their most recent fight and then, you know, further back, further back, further back to the when you get to the end of the story, you get the resolution of the story, plus you get kind of seeing them when they first start going out and everything is new and fresh. So I love the structure and what Peter Shope did there, but I do feel like the story, you didn't necessarily need the coin. Um, this is one that where you, you didn't, but that doesn't make it any less of an interesting story, but yeah, I do sort of feel like I must've been um, cathartic. I'll have to ask Pornsack about it next time I talk to him. If it was cathartic for him to write this about being shut in with the pandemic. The first time he came on the show was when we were in the midst of the pandemic. So uh, I'll definitely have to ask him about that. But for me, it was like, man, a little too soon. I don't want to go back and think about all that <laughs> yeah. stuff. Like not enough time's gone by. Uh, but yeah, I, I did I definitely enjoyed the story. Um, and yeah, but it was, it was one of the more gruesome ones. I mean, we've seen some pretty gruesome ones. This one was, was, was up there. So, uh, all right. Well, up next for me is dark spaces, wildfire. Number three, it's from writer, Scott Snyder. Art by Hayden Sherman, colors by Rhonda Pat Pattison, letters by Anne World Design. This has been such a fantastic story, and it feels so different from anything Snyder has done before. Now, I know Scott's doing a lot of creator-owned stuff right now, and they're all different, diverse stories. This one stands apart from those others. It really feels so different. It There's a claustrophobic feel. It's the story of these women who are uh, in the California penal system. And they're paid like a dollar a day to go out and fight these California wildfires. Uh, and this is all based on real stuff. Um, and one of the women on the line realizes the area they're in that her, her former, she's in prison for like white collar crimes. And she realizes her billionaire boss's um, home is just up the hill. It's one of the, um, one of the homes they're fighting to protect. You know, these women are being paid next to nothing um, you know, pennies an hour to protect these billionaire homes. They have nothing risking their lives to protect these, you know, billionaire homes in the forests of California. 
Um, and she realizes that that's what, what the place is. And they decide that they're going to go rob it of cryptocurrency. All they need is a flash drive, just break in. You know, the house is supposed to be empty because the whole area has been evacuated. And it's, it's about them deciding to do this along with their commanding officer who's had some tragedy in her life, um, the, the correctional officer who's in charge of them. Um, and they have a bond from working together on the line uh, over the years. Um, and so it's, it's a very emotional story. Um, but also, like I said, a very intimate story because these women are in a life and death situation. Like, forget about the the heist they're trying to pull. They're in a life and death situation because they're fighting this fire, uh, and they all are bringing their own baggage, you know, to their to the team. You know, they've all been through stuff. I mean, these are prisoners. They have done bad things, um, but it's about the way the system is sort of rigged against them. Them trying to take back their own power, uh, but you know, fighting this fire and, and being badasses, but also being in over their heads. And there's a claustrophobic feel to it and kind of going along with this feel of uh, something different than Snyder's ever done is the art by Hayden Sherman, who uh, in, in my mind, his art is so different from any artist I've seen Scott work with before. Um, and also the colors aren't necessarily what you'd expect either. Um, you know, much more bright, but not necessarily yellows and oranges like you would expect if they're fighting a forest fire a lot of purples and greens and yellows um almost bright uh pastel like colors from Rhonda Pattison so it works really really well uh can't recommend it highly enough um I'm going to be talking about the second issue later this week when we do our best jacket spotlight Rocky and I will be talking about all the best jacket um books from August including Dark Spaces Wildfire number two so if you want to know more about it you're not worried about being spoiled. Definitely tune in for that. So, uh, all right. Up next for Jay, last book he's going to talk about in detail is Predator. This is issue number two. It's from writer Ed Brisson. Kev Walker is the artist. Frank Diermata on colors and Clayton Cowell on letters. What'd you think of this? It was. It was. I like it because you know it's that uh, uh, girl. She's on a the planet. And it's freezing, so it's just kind of weird how they're there, but, you know, whatever. She meets some other, I guess, aliens, I guess, and she makes it to uh, where she's supposed to go to. But uh, I like it. I just like it's kind of a different spin on the Predator. It's um, you really don't see the Predator in this at all, really. You know, it's kind of that's what's kind of fun is that you really don't see it, but there's little clues that she knows, you know, I guess they already know what what they are. And then uh, I guess the very end, she sees something that belongs to her, and she's like, "Hey, that's that's mine." <laughs> but it's been fun. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next uh, issue. It's 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 not what I expected, so it's not, it's, not, it's it's fun. I mean, you know, I, I like the what they did with the alien storyline because that was so cool. And this one, it's like, okay, we're gonna do something a little different with the predator. So we'll see where they go with it. You know, it's it's only two issues in, but I want to see what, what else they're gonna do with it. You know. So so often the predator stories, they're in. Like the first one's in a jungle. Yeah, it's always hot. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, second one was in L.A. and, you know, future L.A., really hot. But, you know, others have been in jungle. I haven't seen the most recent one, Prey, um, other planets, whatever. But it's you're always on a planet, you know, and, and it's really hot and the predators out there hunting. And that's been sort of interesting. But we know the predators do travel around in space. So it is interesting in the first issue when we meet Theta. Uh, and learn about her past and her parents being killed by a predator. It's interesting that all that happens on a spaceship. You mentioned alien. This has very much of an alien feel, right? They're both Fox properties. Disney now owns them both. 
Marvel also owned by Disney, it makes sense that Marvel would not, uh, or Disney would not, you know, renew the license with Dark Horse that was, you know, previously producing the Alien and the Predator stuff, and they would bring it over to Marvel. Um, I'm not sure why they started Alien over with a new number one, kind of the same thing we were talking about with Daredevil. Last week, there was a new number one, uh, taking a little longer for Predator to come out, but I definitely get a, a, a little bit of an alien vibe from this story being that, you know, like I said, in the first issue, things happen in space. Now we get this character Theta and she's trying to repair her ship, you know, out there hunting predators, kind of flipping the script rather than predators hunting people. She's hunting predators. That's really interesting. But when you talk about a similarity or a little bit of an alien vibe, like Sigourney Weaver is a badass character, you know, Ripley, Ellen Ripley in the alien movies is just a badass character. And now we have this Theta who very much in a lot of ways reminds me of Ripley, like takes no shit, you know, and is just an awesome, awesome character. So I was really impressed with this. Um, I love Predator. Like I love the movies and I feel like this is it's honoring that feel of predators out there hunting, but Brisson's adding so much to it, making it feel like a big, like a broader scope of story. So yeah, really impressed with, uh, with what Ed has done, which is not surprising necessarily because I'm a huge Ed Brisson fan. I think he's a fantastic and very talented writer. So, uh, all right. Up next for me, Axe judgment day. We're up to issue number four. It's from writer Kieran Gillen. Valerio Shitti is the artist. Marty Garcia on colors. Clayton Callan letters. Fantastic Mark Brooks cover. Uh, narrated by the the celestial god that the Eternals and the Avengers and uh, the X-Men created. And we find out the result of his judgment, which is interesting uh, because we're only halfway through the event. So what happens next? Um, th- this issue ends with the crap sort of hitting the fan bad things are, are happening. But one thing that's interesting about the story structure and the way Kieran Gillen is telling this story, it's been throughout this event where he's been using celestials and really big, powerful beings to sort of narrate the story. There are these red dialogue boxes in here, and it is that celestial who's making the choices, making the judgments, who's narrating this. But what it allows him to do is since it's from his perspective and his point of view, it allows him to cover a lot of ground really quickly. And you don't necessarily feel like the pacing is choppy. So there's a lot that happens in this issue. Obviously, I'm not going to spoil, but again, it does make it a little bit hard to, to recap what happens um, because of you know everything that happens. We do see him get to judge different people. So if you're curious, you know, it, does he consider Professor X worthy? Does he consider Doom worthy? Um, does he consider Miss Marvel worthy? Like we get to see a lot of that. Star Fox has made his return. Uh, and in the hands of Kieran Gellin, he's a little more flamboyant than we've seen him in the past. I don't know if I like this version of Star Fox, but it's clear he's going to p- play a big role in the Marvel Universe going forward. Um, and it's this event could have more so than... I'll say more so than a lot of events, you know, Marvel runs just event after event after event. And oftentimes they don't have long, long lasting consequences. And people didn't, don't even know what the consequences of the particular events are. Um, this one feels like it could have some consequences that stick around for longer than you might think. So that's about all I can say. It's interesting. Um, 
I'm I'm finding myself a fan of of the way that Kieran Gillen is doing this because again, it's it is somewhat of an isolated event that's happening in the pages of um of the Avengers and the X-Men titles, at least some of the X-Men titles. Um, but it doesn't seem to be affecting like Tony Stark is in this issue, is in this event, but you don't read anything about this in in Iron Man, right? So I am a fan of the way Kieran Gellin is is telling the story. I think it's pretty rich. And I think uh, if you're reading everything, if you're following a checklist in the back and reading everything, you're getting a richer story. But I also think you can go back and reread and get even more out of it as things are unfolding, just because it's it's a big story and he's managed to he's managing to cover a lot of ground really quickly. So it's pretty impressive what he's doing. Uh, and the art by Valeri uh, Skitti is is fantastic. And the Mark Brooks covers, you know, are always awesome. So. Uh, all right. One last book I'm going to talk about in detail. Uh, I just mentioned Iron Man. So this is the, the last story arc in Iron Man from writer Christopher Cantwell. We have art by Angel Unzetta. Colors are by Frank Diarmada. Letters by uh, Joe Caramagna. And we know that um, kind of in this last arc that Tony is going after this group of arms dealers called Source Point. Uh, but he's trying to do it on the down. He doesn't want to go in there guns blazing and have these weapons go off or be used and, and have any chance of, of having any innocence hurt. So what he's decided to do, is just going to go in there with his pocketbook and just buy up all these weapons. And so that's what, what's going on in this particular issue. And of course uh, he's almost at the end of his goal when things sort of go sideways and the cobalt man shows up, spy master shows up some classic Iron Man villains and Tony's, kind of in over his head. So where does it go from here? We'll have to wait and see. What I do love about this is how much it feels like classic Tony Stark. Um, you know, during the, the very long first uh, story that Christopher Cantwell told, bringing in Korvac to be the villain. And oftentimes I talked about what a fantastic job Cantwell was doing, tearing Tony Stark down to build him back up. And how much it felt like the classic Tony Stark, like pre-RDJ influenced Tony Stark. Because Tony Stark, he never acted the way Robert Downey Jr. acted in the movie. Kind of snarky and try to be funny and charming. That wasn't the Tony Stark we ever had in the comic. Now, a lot of people that are recent Iron Man comic readers may be surprised to hear me say that. But what Robert Downey Jr. did was so successful that I think it maybe almost could be consciously, but could even been unconsciously influenced writers. And they brought in that sort of snarky Tony Stark. Um, Cantwell sort of put the, all that aside and told some stories about a more serious Tony Stark from back in the day that still has the issues of needing to be in control and, and um, you know, danger of substance abuse and, you know, codependent relationships and that sort of thing. And so I liked, I really liked what, what he did. Um, but being that he chose to bring Korvac in, it was a very big story in terms of scope and out in the cosmos and, you know, cosmic power stolen from Galactus and all that. Like, and that's, that's great. It was a fantastic story and I loved it. But I like this story even more because it's a more grounded story dealing with Tony kind of in his own backyard, dealing with you know, dangerous weapons and arms and the guilt Tony feels, the fact that his fortune, um, his legacy, uh, his, the, his identity is of 
him as Iron Man itself is all tied into the fact that his dad founded a, a weapons manufacturing company. So, you know, again, this is Tony in his backyard. The art by Angel Unzetta is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I love this. When I finished reading it, I again, this was another one of the books this week. I was like, damn, that was so good. And then on the heels of that, I immediately thought, God, I, I hate that Christopher Cantwell is moving on from this title because I want him to have a longer run on it because I just love what he's doing with Tony. Now, it may be that he doesn't necessarily have another story to tell or he's ready to move on, which, you know, you take the silver lining because he's got a Namor project that's coming up where, he, you know, he's going to do something similar with Namor. I can't wait. I can't wait because Namor is always a character for me who's I run hot and cold on him in the hands of the right writer. He can be an interesting character. Um, But a lot of times he comes across as sort of a mustache twirling villain. Um, (laughs) He's just not that interesting, right? His motivation is, Oh, surface dwellers are bad because they pollute the oceans. Like it's very two, you know, very two dimensional. So I'm very curious um, because I think Christopher's a super talented writer. So I can't wait to see what he does with Namor. And he also has a golden goblin book that's coming up that we know is going to have jack-o'-lantern in it as well. So seeing him do something over in the Spider-Man corner of the Marvel universe is going to be really exciting also. So sad to see him leave Iron Man because Iron Man is one of my favorite characters, but happy to see him coming on um, some of these other characters, but my dream character for Christopher to work on, I want him on the Hulk. I want him on the Hulk because I think he will tell exactly the kind of story Hulk stories that I, that I've been wanting so long, right? Like I've talked about it. We had the, the huge immortal Hulk run from Al Ewing. And yes, it was interesting, but it was really big ideas of, you know, religion and good versus evil and all that sort of stuff. And we shifted from that to starship Hulk with Donnie Cates. Like I'm ready to get back to some more grounded stories of, you know, Bruce Banner on the run, you know, a la the, the Hulk TV show or Pro- professor Hulk or super heroic Hulk, like something a little more classic. Not to say what those other guys are doing is not interesting, but I, I just, I'm such a fan of Cantwell and his work that I really want to see what he would do with Hulk. Um, so anyway, all right, let's give, uh, let's give a rundown on some of the other books you might want to be on the lookout for today. Uh, in addition to these books that we uh, talked about from AWA studios, we have sacrament number two, which has been described as alien slash exorcist in space. I didn't read the first issue, so um, I have no idea, but it looked pretty interesting. I wanted to mention it um, over at DC. And again, you can listen to all these on our DC Spotlight that came out yesterday. Batgirls number 10, uh, Batman Urban Legends number 19, Batman versus Robin number one with the return of Alfred uh, with about a thousand different covers. So you got your pick there. Dark Crisis Worlds Without a Justice League Wonder Woman number one, one shot. Flash, The Fastest Man Alive, number one of three, which is a prequel to the movie that's coming. Uh, Future State Gotham, number 17. I Am Batman, number 13. Jurassic League, number five of six. Superman, Son of Kal-El, number 15. And Wonder Woman, number 791. Over at Image, in addition to the books that we talked about, we've got uh, Above Snakes, number three of five. Do a Power Bomb, number four of seven, which is a wrestling book from Daniel Warren Johnson. King Spawn, number 14. That last Shadowhawk book that I talked about a few weeks ago has a 3D edition that's out today. 
Um, so look for that if you're uh, if you're so inclined. And then um, at Marvel, there's a few other books that uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about. Edge of the Spider-Verse, number three of five. There's also a second printing of number one if you missed it. Um, Midnight Suns, number one of five. We also have Miss Marvel and Venom, number one. Uh, Star Wars Bounty Hunters, number 27. Star Wars Obi-Wan, number five of five. Venom, number 10. And X-Men Red, number six. So look for those uh, if you are interested in any of those books. And I think that's it. I didn't have anything else I wanted to mention. Uh, actually, I do. I have one more. Uh, Mindset number three from uh, writer Zach Kaplan, which is a mind-bending idea of technology and how technology has brought us closer together, but also kind of isolates us, makes our life easier, makes our life harder. It, it's really um, an interesting book, one of those books that makes you think about the effect technology has had on our lives. It's become so ubiquitous. You know, we all carry a computer around in our pocket. What's the price we're paying for that? So uh, any other books you want to mention, Jay? Uh, no, but just to say that my book of the week would probably be uh, Righteous for Thirst for for uh, Vengeance, but I did like the 06 Portal Call. That was pretty awesome, too. Yeah, um, I have to get like, I mean, there were so many good books. I could give it to Iron Man. Um, because, I, yeah, that was just really great. I thought Daredevil was great. Um, I I thought Predator was fantastic. So that, <laughs> There's a lot of good books. Ago. Yeah, it's just a lot of great books. But I think I do have to go with Zero Six Protocol. Okay. Um, as my, my favorite, just because it was so unexpected. I didn't know what to expect it. Again, you know, I talked about it being an idea that is not necessarily super original, you know, the base idea, but if done well, it can be entertaining. And it was entertaining right from page one, but then that twist at the end, oh, shit, yeah, yeah. it cranked it up to 10 for me. And I was just really impressed. So oh, yeah. yeah, I go with, I go with protocol. Um, and yeah, I'm not surprised. Righteous thirst was, uh, was your favorite. So some great books. Every, yeah. Some great oh, Batman books. Oh, Batman Day's this Saturday. So if you go to your comic shop, they should have some free books. Yeah. Yeah. Batman Day. Um, there, there's a new version of Hush. It's out. Um, issue number one. And then there is a, a Hush new collection with a new Hush story set in that same storyline that's coming as well. Uh, again, we, we talk about all this on the DC Spotlight. So go listen if you're so inclined. Um, but that's going to do it for this episode. So we appreciate everybody joining as always. Um, we appreciate the support. We're glad you joined us and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.